As an educator, are you designing experiences that cultivate social and emotional learning? In your classroom and school communities, you can develop social and emotional learning through an environment where students feel safe, welcomed, cared for, and able to take risks. Hapara Highlights and Hapara Filter are two tools that help you create a safe, supportive environment while building student agency. To learn more about establishing a culture of social and emotional learning with Hapara tools, visit hapara.com sel. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm a reporter and the managing editor here at Ed Surge. One big theme we're hearing these days in education innovation circles is that the world of work is changing faster than ever, and so schools and colleges have to change what and how they teach to meet those changing needs. In St. Louis, there's a university that's embracing that argument in a big way and talking about revamping its liberal arts curriculum and even changing its business model with the goal of helping its students get good jobs after graduation. The school is Maryville University, and its president, Mark Lombardi, is our guest today. Lombardi laid out his ideas in a new book that he co-wrote called Pivot, A Vision for the New University. There's a line in this book that, that really struck me, talking about the many adult learners who are looking to advance their careers but don't necessarily want to go back to a traditional college. He says, If colleges and universities do not provide education and skill development for this exploding population of continuous learners, someone else will. In fact, there are well-funded companies like Coursera and edX that are building low-cost alternatives to traditional college programs, often in partnership with colleges. And it seems Lombardi thinks more colleges should get into the act and do it on their own. After reading Pivot, I still had plenty of questions about exactly how this traditional university was planning to change. So I was happy to sit down with Lombardi after a speech he gave at the recent South by Southwest EDU conference in Austin. I started by asking how he defines the new university that he's trying to pivot toward. I would describe the new university as one that uh, is based solely and completely on the learner, the student, their data, the way they learn, and restructuring or reorganizing that university, starting with that principle, not, not ending with it. Most universities, all universities really, are organized around, um, around discipline and schools and colleges, and these huge silos have grown up over decades, as we know. Subject areas, you Subject mean areas. that kind of discipline. Subject areas and, and all that. And then students come to it. They're taught pretty much the same way, kind of warehouse con- instruction like I was and others. Some schools are better at it than others. And then hopefully magic happens, and often it does, and a lot of times it doesn't. And we know that it doesn't really because they're telling us, you know, they're losing confidence in higher ed. They don't think it's worth the cost anymore. Uh, you've got more and more students not completing. So the answer to that is not to tinker with the model. The answer is to really restart a whole new model. And we've got the tools now with this digital revolution we're in the middle of to take those tools and to take student data – not to not to sell them products, not to monetize it like some of our friends do as who remain nameless, but to use it to create student learner profiles that empower the student and then they 
they uh, engage with and 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 uh, access the content based on their learning style and a whole host of different things and on different multiple platforms. COVID, strangely enough, accelerated the digital clock. I like to say it's it's 2027. It's not 2022 digitally. And now we've got a perfect opportunity to do that. And frankly, that's what we've been doing at Maryville. We've been working on it. Yeah, it sounds like you've got some, you know, kind of some trademark programs. Can you give an example of a specific program at Maryville that uses that approach you're describing? Well, we've been, what we've been doing, the first thing you have to do when you take this approach, you have to modularize curriculum, right? Instead of curriculum being the way I built it when I was a faculty member, building it as a four-year curriculum, we've been taking programs, new and existing programs, and basically slicing and dicing them. So a student can still take an entire array of courses in computer science, for example. They also can get a certificate in AI, they can get a certificate in cyber, they can get a certificate in blockchain, and they can mix and match and pair. So if you if you create if you take curriculum and you and you metaphorically, if you take it from a marathon to a series of sprints that students can select in and out at all levels, whether they're 19 or 35 or 55, you create opportunities, you create access points for learners across the spectrum. Now, are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. But we have begun this process and we've engineered it in several areas and the results we're seeing are really wonderful. Now, you did mention um, curriculum design and, and I'm curious why that's important. Because everyone learns differently. So, so think of it this way. Faculty are repositories of expertise and content, okay, by definition, uh, because they've spent their lives studying something sure. and learning about it. And when, when the teacher decides how all that content is going to be laid out, some students it works and some students it doesn't work because of the way their brains are developed, because of their uh, uh, relative talents, because of their learning styles, because of a whole host of factors that we can identify. But if you take the content and modularize it, slice it and dice it for lack of a better term, you then allow students with different styles, different approaches, different learning, all of those things to select and also to consume that content, maybe not in order. Right? So it's not – instead of it being a ladder, I got to do this and this and this and this and this, students are able to access it from multiple channels, still getting the education they need but doing it in a way that fits their approach, their learning style. And, and so, so, I mean, just as a, a small example of that, so you, you got a student coming in who really doesn't need X, Y, and Z early on because they've already got it or they've – and the, the old thing was, well, you could test out or you could do AP credit in high school. But that really doesn't capture what we're talking about. We're really talking about how students learn and how students consume things um, based on brain development, all, these, all this research. It's all out there. So fundamentally, it says to the student, look, if you're going to get a degree in computer science, we think you need to know all this. But you don't have to learn it sequentially. You don't have to take it that way. You can access and you can access some of it on ground, some of it online, some of it hybrid, in different platforms and in different ways. Some of it experiential. So you end up with an educational package of a student that's unique, and that's built around them and not the other way around. You know, I, I don't know about you. Everybody has a story of courses that they took in college that were boring, and I hated them, and blah blah blah. And it was always, well, that's the student's problem. It wasn't the student's problem. It was the pedagogy. It was the approach. I don't know about you. I, I stunk at math. 
right? And now I run a multi-million dollar business. So what happened? I can't learn math by watch, looking at the back of someone writing equations on the board, right? You got to put me in real life situations where I have to apply math and, and I can do it. I can do it easily. I love it. I think all of it comes down to taking learner data, learning profiles, sophisticated stuff built with HI, uh, AI, excuse me, and and then starting there when we talk about curriculum, not the other way around. That's interesting. And so I guess the the data that you're getting on on these students, it's basically from how how do you what what method do you have? Because it's obviously there's also concerns about privacy and right. and overly. You know, I know a lot of places are wondering like. Is there too much data collection without it being useful? Well, the the difference – look, we all know we live in this data collection society which massive companies have built billions around collecting our data, holding on to it, owning it, and monetizing it. We all know about all that. What we're trying to do at Maryville is – it's a new matrix of higher ed where we help the student collect the data about themselves and then we give it to them. We want them to own their data, not us. And we don't want to monetize it. So so think of it this way. When you were 18 or I was – if I knew all the dimensions of my learning profile – and by the way, the research out there, like people like Beth Rudin at IBM who are doing amazing work and many others, it's all out there. It's not something yet to be invented. You take that and I've got – I know how I learn. I know the best ways I can learn. I know all the different elements of who I am. My digital learning profile, not my hair color, and you know, that's superficial. I'm talking about real deep stuff. Then I'm empowered. I'm empowered to make my choices. I'm empowered. And then faculty and advisors are really guides and facilitators of the choices students make, not saying you need this, you need this, you need this, without telling them why. You know, the worst thing I think you can do with a student is say you need to do this. Why? Because you'll find out when you're 35 that this will really matter. That's... That's that's the way we were raised. That's the way generations were raised and taught, and it doesn't work. I'm going to cut in here for a second. I was curious about this expert that Lombardi was citing, so I looked her up afterwards. Her name is Beth Rudden, or Rudin, and her title at IBM is Distinguished Engineer and Principal Data Scientist. At a conference in 2019, she explained her vision of trying to analyze employee interests and strengths to better match them with new roles within a company. Here's how she put it. It is, um, it's, it's instrumental in being able to see human beings in a lot more dimensions. So um, when we classify humans by a particular job role skill set, we often don't know that they have a passion for things like coding or anything else. And so we're, we're really doing a lot more where we're getting deeper and being able to match our supply and demand in-house, as well as know when we have a demand for someone and this person almost meets that demand based on all of the different dimensionality that we can do, we mm-hmm. can put them into this specific training class and then allow them to go through that training class so that we can upgrade the entire, upskill and reskill the entire workforce. After the break, what does this pivot in college curriculum mean for the future of the humanities? Stay with us. When it comes to your classroom and school communities, are you combining academic goals with a mindset for social and emotional learning? Educators can use Hapara Highlights and Hapara Filter as social and emotional coaching tools. Highlights is a Chrome monitoring tool that develops digital citizenship. With Highlights, 
a teacher can see what students are browsing and guide them if an open tab isn't learning focused. The teacher then can send a highlights direct message that asks the student to be part of the conversation and decision-making process about their own browsing. Teachers can also curate websites for students and gradually give them more browsing independence to help them learn how to self-manage. Hapara Filter is a K-12 web filter powered by AI that helps students practice responsible decision-making in a supportive climate. Within the filter, they can ask their teacher for approval to use a website for learning in the moment. It also keeps students safe by blurring inappropriate images, text, and video, and alerting educators to signs of cyberbullying and self-harm. To learn more, visit hapara.com sel. That's hapara.com sel. Now back to the episode. Is this redesigned curriculum also, is it more geared toward thinking about careers and, and, and a little less about the humanities and that core curriculum idea of like, because I, I, when you say, you know, oh, you'll, you'll appreciate that you know this later, a lot of times those types of things are humanities courses, if I understand you correctly. Well, it, think of it as sequencing. So we were taught probably you got to have a liberal arts core and a liberal arts base before you're going to learn business or you're going to learn whatever. Sure. Why? Who said so? Why does it have? Why does one have to be before the other? You could make you could easily make the argument that building your skill set around the things that you may want to do career-wise should be done earlier in the process. I'm not making that, but you could make that argument and say, and then we're going to layer the humanities and layer all of that in. You know, I benefited greatly from taking Shakespeare courses and, and, and all the things that I was able to, philosophy and whatever. But I'd never make the argument as an educator now that I should have had that first. And then you can do the other. Higher ed is bought into that largely for 120 years because the first academic disciplines in higher ed were in the humanities and liberal arts. So naturally, they believe they come first. In fact, I, there are still faculty all over that are saying, well, you, you, you have to, before you can take a business course, you have to learn English. Who said? Why? I think... It's certainly what I grew up with. Yeah, exactly. But, but if you think... So think of it this way. Forget about disciplines for a minute. If you think about a university as this huge content store or content repository, massive amounts of content from faculty and all kinds of things, then the question becomes, how do you empower a student to be able to pick out and to be able to access that content store, not just through courses, but also through a set of experiences, through digitally using digital tools at their disposal, then what you've got is you say, look, uh, Mark, Joe, whatever, you want to be an actuary or you want to be uh, in finance or you want to be a nurse or you want to be – here's what you're going to need to enter into that profession. Now, how are you going to construct and build that and access that content? And then it also allows us to tie the content development delivery there to what employers are really looking for. So instead of employers getting some resume where everybody, you know, had a 3-5 and on and on and on, they've got real language to understand, ah, so you have these, here's, you have these five skills, you've done these things. You've, almost like a, it should be more like an artist's portfolio, really. It should be that that you're, you're, you want to show your skill in the arts or in music. You have to present a portfolio of your work. That's a much more accurate than a GPA or any of these other what I would consider arcane measures. I mean, if I could do it tomorrow, I'd get rid of grading in a heartbeat. Aren't you the president? 
Well, <laughs> some sacred cows are worth uh, uh, sacrificing and some are not, uh, at least right now. But I've got a whole bunch of faculty that are want to get rid of grading and, and ostensibly are trying to do it themselves. They don't, they don't need me to push them. Is there accrediting as well? Like there are some technical issues here. You know, accrediting bodies are getting, uh, like a lot of things in this digital world, are getting swept aside very rapidly. How do you mean swept aside? Well, the the... Think of, think of the age we're in as a democratization of knowledge and information. Now, there's a lot of misinformation out there, too, and used by nefarious people. But if we look at the bright side of it's a democratization of knowledge and access, then the question becomes how can accrediting bodies maintain their control when you can access education information in a whole host of ways? The accrediting bodies are going to have to adapt to that reality, and I think they know it. It's just that they're not sure how to do it yet. We see this when we deal with our accrediting body. You know, we're in great shape and all the rest of it, but we have conversations with them, and they, they tell us offline that, yeah, we realize that we've got to change the way we think of education because we can't just count our credit hours. You know, credit hours doesn't tell you hardly anything anymore about what somebody learned, what skills they developed. Yeah, do you worry as you make this big change or promote this big change to the university i mean is it is it partly out of a worry that these upstart providers that are outside of the traditional system you know i'm thinking of like courseras and and other upstarts that offer very skill very kind of job career oriented programs that um you know they haven't really replaced college yet a lot of them are more like grad school kind of right uh competitors but you know is there a sense that that could change down the line and that you might have more competitors? I'm going to answer it this way. Think about what's happened to journalism. Journalism, because it didn't adapt to the changing world, has now been not completely destroyed but fully usurped by what I would call uh, uh, fake journalism, not fake news, but fake uh, the Facebooks and the, the other entities that have basically seen news as just a, another monetary, uh, another way of getting clicks and another way of generating money, right? So as a result, the important role journalism play in a democracy has been undermined, and we see some of the results of that. Education can remake itself and be the, uh, the conduit for a education for millions who've been closed out, access and opportunity, which is what I talked about today, but it has to adapt itself. It can't simply do things the same old way or, yeah, a Coursera, there are some interesting entities out there that are not nefarious, but quite frankly, there's also other entities that are going to come in and, and, and what I would say they would, for purely money reasons, they're going to completely undermine the education of the population. So we've got to guard against that, and the way we do it is adapting to this digital revolution and embracing it. And, and like I say, shift that matrix, right? And I think we can do it. I think higher ed can do it. I had a good friend who was... Uh, he was editor of paper in Cincinnati, and then he left to become president of a university. And after a couple of years, he we were talking. He said, you know, this is a few years ago. He said, you know, higher ed has the same stink on it that the newspaper business did a few years ago. It doesn't realize how much the world's changing, and it needs to adapt fast. Wow. Um, well, that does hit home for me. And, you know, you did mention this tension between access and elitism, right? Yes. And higher ed loves prestige and, and rankings and, mm -hmm. um, and all those things um, probably put pressure to have it have stay the old way, maybe. Um, oh, there, look, 
think of it this way. We, we rank ourselves based on how many people we don't let in. Yeah. It, it, it is the, the height of elitism and exclusion, and it runs counter to the concept of inclusion and the values. And I'd put it even more, right? We got massive amounts of human problems here in this country and around the world. Uh, no matter what you, where you look, there are social, economic, medical, military. There are all kinds of problems. And I'll put it this way. Do you want uh, – you have a 1,000 people who could work on those problems with education. Why would you only want to have 10 working on them by only educating 10? You want to have – I, I don't know about you. Instead of 500 you know, scientists working on a cure for cancer, I want 5 million working on a cure for cancer. How do we get there? Empower the talent. Don't don't say to somebody, we, you and I g- want to be admitted at a college. You get admitted and I don't based on God knows what, your SAT score or whatever. Why, why, why keep me out? It doesn't make any sense. Then when you talk about cost as an inhibiting factor in that, you're not only talking about elitism. You're talking about this – uh, the opposite of what a social construct really means or, or a social uh, contract um, where people are empowered to do more. I, people keep talking about the demographics, you know, less 18-year-olds, whatever. We're about to enter potentially a golden age of education because there's 46 million Americans with college credit, no degree. There's a whole universe of people in the workforce that need reskilling and upskilling and over the next just the next two, three, four years, let alone the next 20. And then you've got all these young people that are not get they can't get access to higher ed. We got to open the doors. We've got to change the model, change the whole approach to it along the lines I talked about earlier, and then open the doors and empower these young people. I believe everybody has the talent to succeed. It's our job to find the key to unlock that lock for a kid. It's not their job to, I don't know, take some high-stakes standardized test when they're 16 and then we determine their potential based on that. That's crazy. If you... We went around the table, my senior staff at Maryville one time a few years ago, and half of us wouldn't wouldn't meet the admission standards of most universities hmm. coming out of high school. and then, we, But we're running the operation. I mean, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, and, and you, there, with this new university, is there concern that there be um, – because, you know, you're not alone in talking about – you know, I know Arizona State comes to mind and some other universities that are out there, some publics in California we just recently had on, um, some professors arguing with the UC Riverside model um, – so there are people talking about making sure universities are more accessible and, and work harder to get adult students and to get um, underrepresented students. Um, but do you worry at all that there be a, like a, a you know elite universities, you know the old the old fashioned humanities driven model versus a second tier or like a, 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 the new universities kind of not having as much elitism or but that could hurt the students. I, I think I think education is going to end up, I'm just going to tell you, before this decade is out, the measure of education is going to be purely on student outcomes and nothing else. It's not going to be based on endowment. It's not going to be based on admissions. It's not going to be based on any of that. It's going to be based on how well does an educational institution prepare students for their their defined career successes, whether it's in this career or another or another. How does it prepare them? That's why the learning profile, that's why starting with the learner is so vital. It's the, if we're defining our own success, 
that's 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 a that's a dangerous dangerous thing right it's it because you 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 then start picking and choosing the mar- markers that make you look the best the reality is it's student outcomes it's all that matters so it's outcomes that's what I was going to ask like cuz so much of education especially higher education is hard to measure right mm-hmm. so that you're saying start from the the career success or not of the graduates yeah and I, that'll I, be the measure i yes and career success is a self-defined thing so if i go to maryville for four years i graduate and i want to be a scientist and i'm a scientist for four, i get a job right out of and i'm a scientist you know and then i decide i want to move careers from that to something else and i'm able to do that with the skills i've developed and maybe even an, an additional engagement with maryville on a certificate or something or another school that's a sign that you've done you've done your job. You've done the right thing by that by that student. That's a sign. That in fact to me it's the only measure that matters. It doesn't um you know, it's impossible to measure happiness or to measure those kinds of things, but we're trying to prepare them for life. And a life in this case where they have to go out and make a world for themselves, a career, a family, et cetera, et cetera. The definition of a successful outcome is how they define it, right? And and if we've given them those tools and we've stick, stayed with them, that's why the digitization element that we were talking about earlier is so crucial. Education shouldn't be a four-year or five-year or six-year sprint. It should be a lifelong engagement. We want every Maryville student to be to be able to access that content store, if you will, for a lifetime. I'm going to tell you this. We're working towards a subscription model. We believe that higher ed, by the end of this decade or before, uh, students should pay for higher ed the way they pay for Netflix or their cell phone bill. Uh, I'm not talking about if they're living on campus, room and board. You know, you want to you want to live somewhere. You got to pay for it, just like anywhere. You get an apartment. You got to. So you may some, not be in the same town as your you know campus. You're talking about right. wherever they are. Right, but they they would have access to that at any time they want it, and they'd pay a subscription rate. Now, I've, if I've, some of my students are listening to this, no, it's not going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> we're working. Yeah, how much does it cost? Yeah, how much, and when? Where do I sign up? But why not? We pay for a lot of the services that you and I enjoy. That's how we pay for them now. And why? What are we paying for? Access and convenience and a lot of other things. And we're also paying for quality. But again, unlike at the Amazons and Netflix, Maryville's not going to collect all this student data and own it and monetize it. We want to collect this data on every student and give it to them, empower them with that data. So they see themselves digitally the way we would see them. There wouldn't be any secrets. There wouldn't be any of that in a one-to-one situation. So they've got their profile they understand how they learn. They understand how to access information. The things that you and I, through a lifetime, have picked up through intuition, right? I enjoy watching somebody teach me how to cook than reading about it. So I watch YouTube videos about how to cook. We pick that up through experience and whatever you want to call it. They should have that information at their disposal as early as possible. They should know that. They shouldn't have to figure it out. I know I'm, I'm a visual learner, so I need to access this content visually. I know that. I know that about myself. That's how I'm going to do it. That's where we need to be. You know, it's interesting. I'm curious about how you measure that because I know there has – I've heard some research show that there, these learning styles are a little bit more of a myth. Well, it's interesting. The research that I – and again, I'm not trying to pretend to be an expert on learning styles, but the research I'm – looking at, like I mentioned Beth Rudman and there are others who are doing amazing in-depth 
I don't remember the exact term, but call it uh, uh, depth personal profiles of people, learning and brain development and all the rest. That work is showing that you can get down to incredible depth on, on what makes somebody tick, for lack of a better term, just with the unstructured and structured data that's out there open source. I'm not talking about sitting and doing a psychoanalysis of you or me, right? I mean, God forbid if they did it on me. I'm talking about just what's out there on the Internet. And, and, and when you do that and then you give it to somebody, and I've, I've had this done, by the way. Beth did this for me. Huh. Um, it is eye-opening. And I don't mean eye-opening like, uh, oh, I like chocolate versus vanilla ice cream. I'm talking about when you look at this grid, and for lack of a better term, and you start to put the pieces together in the way that it's laid out, you're like, it's a, it's a series of revelations. That's why I went down that road and I didn't go down that road. That's why I like doing this. What we used to pick up intuitively through research, we now can do this. Now think about what would happen, not, not for a 61-year-old guy, but doing that for a 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old before they're going to enter potentially higher ed. What would that mean? I, here's how I know I can learn math. Here's how I know that I can do chemistry instead of what happened to me and everybody else where the teacher walked in the first day of chemistry and proudly pronounced that half of you will fail. You know what I mean? And love that. You know, what would it be? What would it, let's flip that script around. Why not? What's, what's the, what is the biggest obstacle to this catching on beyond your experiments at your own college? The biggest obstacle is no vertical, healthcare, education, name a vertical, whatever it is, newspaper, business, whatever. No vertical ever sees the need to really change until it's too late. That's why there have to be institutions, in this case, in education like Maryville, to, to push out into this revolutionary space so that others don't end up dying on the vine based on their own obstinance or intransigence and showing people that it can be done. Look, at Maryville, we've done some amazing things in the digital space. We're a top 10% connected campus in the in the America, all these different things we've done. Was everybody on board at the beginning? No. But as I write about in the book, consensus should never be a, a goal in any endeavor. If, if we had consensus, we wouldn't have had Apple. We wouldn't have had a Steve Jobs. We wouldn't have had any of these things that we enjoy today. What you have to do is show people that it can be done, pilot it, not, and then welcome everybody in, not exclude, not to, but to welcome. We did that on several initiatives, and our faculty owned it. They, the, even the ones that were intransigent about some of it, like a one-to-one -one initiative with the iPad or whatever, they owned it. And they owned it because they sat there and watched their peers doing it, and they said, you know what? That looks pretty good. Or Joe, my buddy across the hall, is really having great results with this. I think i got to try it. So you invite people in and you demonstrate and you show them and you let them run with it. And I, 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 just a, a quick question, which is, you know, our, reader, our readership and listeners are K-12 and higher ed. And I wonder if there's any um, thoughts you have on how high schools could or should change to to meet this new university you describe? Well, I'm going to tell you, as difficult as it is to move higher ed forward, I don't even want to think about K-12 because of the politicians and the family. And, oh, my Lord, I, I, I always tell superintendents and principals, your job's way tougher than mine. And I, I'm, I'm hearing that at this conference, yeah. too. And I'm, and I'm lucky. lucky. I'm, I'm in private, private higher ed. But 
here's what I do know, okay? Flip it around. I speak all the time with, with groups of people. They're all parents or grandparents to one, right? Every time I talk about learning style, brain research, the right key to unlock, they all have an aha moment. And the aha moment is they all had a son or a daughter, a brother or sister, a grandchild, who one was good at school and one wasn't. And they're, they're not going to say, well, the Mark, he wasn't very good at school. He's not that bright. Nobody says that. They're like, I know Mark has talent. I know Mark can do things. But for some reason, he can't do it. And when you, when you talk to people at that level, they start going, tell me more about learning theory. Tell me more about why, why does my son Mark, why is he so lousy at math? I, I, I think he's really clever and smart, but we can't seem to get him in or the school can't get him interested. Everybody has a personal story like that. And instead of treating it like an act of God, right, like God said, Mark, you shall not know math, and it, you, you say to him, no, this is this, – Mark can learn math. We just got to find the right key. And when we do that and unlock it, he may end up being an astrophysicist. You have no idea. That's, the, uh, that's where you have to reach people one-on-one, where they live, with the people they love. And and then build out from there rather than looking at it as some administrative. We're going to do build it out from there. And I think I think you'll find a lot of people will even not understanding some of these things will embrace it because everybody wants their kids to be successful. And and how soon is your Netflix uh, model or your your subscription model coming? Well, here, let me let me we do a, a thing called Maryville Works, which is workforce development skill upskilling, not for a degree. But uh, it, with businesses in St. Louis area, and it's taken off. I mean, we've in a very short period of time, we got about 2,600 employees doing all kinds of program certificates for the most part that we provide, not for credit, but to upskill them, right? And that's on a subscription model, and it's it's doing great, and and businesses love it. So we've got companies that work with us, and they they go. I, I'm going to have 500 people in the next five years I need to upskill, so I'll buy 500 subscriptions at 650 or 800 bucks a year per subscription. And I'll buy that right now because it's a great investment in these five, even if they don't know who some of the employees are. That's where we started it, and it's really taking off. And the so students learn online? Workers, yeah. It's, it's a online with, with some companies like a hybrid and by the way, it's not cookie cutter. It's not like, here, take this MBA and you'll be brilliant. It's, we co-design it with the business. They tell us what they need. Our learning designers co-design it with the business so it's tailored for that, that need. So you are competing with Coursera, sort of. We are. We are. And, and, and businesses love it. It's a better investment. The subscription model is, is working. It's not tuition remission. It's not, it's, so, so we're piloting it there to see how it works. And then I think then we have to layer it in down the road in different areas. I, you know, I hate, to, I hate to make a prediction, but I will tell you, I would say probably the middle of this decade, we're going to be able to move into this space. For your alumni, or would you sell it to non-Maryville students? Sell it to anybody. You know, education, okay, I don't believe education should be free, okay, at all. I don't think anything worthwhile should be free necessarily. Because I think people need skin in the game. They need to make an investment to do the things they want to do. Sure. But, it, but it, it certainly doesn't have to be what it is now. The expenses 
ridiculous. And then you embrace AI at the level we are in digitization and just to be more mundane, uh, you can cut out a tremendous amount of administrative costs, tremendous amount. Because most of the administrative costs are really paper. I mean, figuratively speaking, people, people pushing paper. Sounds different. Well, I really appreciate you sharing all this. And sure. we'll, we'll, when you get that um, subscription out, you let us know. I will. We're going to do that. And uh, we're going to be launching. Uh, we're piloting uh, uh, also a system. An, we call it an ecosystem using AI, and it's on the blockchain. We're piloting it now with about a 1,000 or so uh, uh, students uh, in different spaces. And we're going to have the results on that in a few short months. And based on that, uh, we may be talking about uh, a wholly different ecosystem built on some of the principles we're talking about, which would accelerate being able to do what we're talking about now. We're doing it in partnership with a private company that's uh, a startup that's done some amazing things. So I'll come back and talk about that one, too, if you want. Awesome. All right. We'll talk again. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one. If you like the show, please follow us on your favorite podcast app and take a minute to leave us a rating or review. You can keep up with what we are doing with our weekly podcast newsletter. Just go to edsurge.com and click on newsletter at the top right. And live events are back these days. So we are taking the Ed Surge podcast on the road. Our next in-person appearance will be at the ISTE Live conference in New Orleans in late June. And we'll be talking about an innovative topic, uh, what the metaverse could mean for education. Hope to see some of you there. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Young. Music this episode by Mon Placier. We will be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening. <laughs>